You know, I've done some reflecting on uh, 2017, and I was thinking about, you know, just world events, uh, events here in our own nation, and as I thought about those things, I was just thinking about how crazy of a world we live in. I mean, 2017 saw some of the most horrendous events, you know, when you think of natural disasters to mass shootings, to the racism that's still, unfortunately, alive and well in our country, um, to other, uh, to war in other parts of the world. So just to name a few of these things, wildfires in California that killed 43, you may remember those. It destroyed over 8,000 structures. When you think about the earthquakes in Mexico that killed 369 people, Uh, Remember, 2017 saw Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. You know, these killed hundreds of people. The mass shooting, of course, in Las Vegas, 58 people were killed. Uh, I think over 500 were injured. Of course, the church shooting in Texas, 26 killed, 20 others injured in that. This, I mean, that's that's all just, just completely horrible. But when you think of the Syrian civil war, started in 2011, you know how many people have died in that civil war? Over 400,000 people have died since 2011. And then, I really have been following the situation with North Korea. Um, and that's, that whole situation is just, just craziness. Um, you know, it, it's... that. Supposedly, North Korea has the ability to fire a nuclear warhead at any city in our, in our country. They have in intercontinental ballistic missiles that could reach and level any of our cities and anywhere. Um, and then when you have their leader and our leader just like taunting each other back and forth with nuclear war, how can you joke and make light about that. They talk about it like it's like a, a sporting event and you're going, to, going out and you're trash talking to play basketball against somebody. It's just, the, I mean, it's just craziness. We live in a crazy world and I don't think that's a hard sell, right? I don't think anybody is going to disagree with me on that. And what's so sad to me is that our country celebrates the evil in the world. And the and there's the anti godness, for lack of a better term, that that is so ripe in our country. You know, you think about the movies we watch, the television shows that we watch, all glorify violence, sex, drugs. You know, you name it. Think about the video games that we play; um, <laughs> completely glorify the same things. Um, you think about. Um, you know, just the, the attitude we have that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We watch sports that include beating people unconscious. You think Jesus would watch a sport that did that? Don't think so. I mean, it's just, we are so far <laughs> lost. We are as a culture. I think one uh, commentator in particular, has a really accurate description of the mentality of the culture we live in. He writes this, The God of modern, modern culture is not the God of, of the Bible, but is ultimately the self. 
This, this strange God demands worship that creates values different than those of Christianity. Since the individual is at the heart of the worship of secular culture, personal gratification and self-realization are prized over any sense of the other person, any sense of community, whether that community is the family, the church, the city, the nation, or the global community. And so the question I think for us becomes as Christians, how do we live in this world? How do we live in this world that is just rampant with evil? How can we resist being assimilated into the beliefs in the ways of this world? How do we, instead of going with the flow, how do we swim upstream? Today we're going to be starting a new sermon series on the book of Daniel that I've titled Remaining Faithful in a Faithless Generation. And I think this sermon series will help us answer some of those questions of how we can live faithfully in, in a day and age that is just pure craziness. Today we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter one. And uh, I'll pray and then we'll read the passage and then we'll consider some of the context and then what God might want us to glean from this passage of scripture. Let me read, let me pray and then I'll read. Lord Jesus, we thank you for you and your love for us and that you have promised to be with us. And Lord, you know what it's like to come and to live in a crazy world because you've come into this broken world and you lived at a time where there was a lot of craziness going on when we think of first century Rome. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us as we go through this book of Daniel, that you would help us to understand how can we live like you lived in the midst of a, of a world gone awry. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to see what it is that you want to speak into our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Asphenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Michelle, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So that's the passage. Um, let me give you some context. 
uh, so that we can really kind of get in this world that Daniel was living in, so we can really visualize it. Because I think it will help us make sense of, of some of what's going on here in, in the passage. So uh, this is happening during a time when Judah was a nation. And if you might, you might recall, in the Old Testament, Israel was a nation and then it split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah. So Je- Jehoiakim is the king of of Judah at this time, and he was the king during the time when the king of the Babylonians, who were really rising in power under the king Nebuchadnezzar, um, so Jehoiakim was the the king of of Judah then. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he comes to, to Judah, in particular Jerusalem, and he comes and he, he sieges he besieges the city. He, he takes articles out of the temple in Jerusalem, brings them back uh, to a temple of his God back in Babylon. And he also, not, he not, not only takes articles from the temple, but he also takes some of the royal family from, you know, Jehoiakim's royal family. He takes members of that family and members of his administration and brings them back to Babylon to serve him. Um, Daniel, the author of this book that we're reading, is one of those guys that was a part of the royal family there in Judah that was captured and taken back to Babylon to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, so the setting of the book of Daniel starts out in Jerusalem, but it really quickly shifts and it moves to Babylon, all right? And you may be thinking, all right, how on earth is a book that was written over 2,000 years ago going to help me understand how I need to live in America in 2018? You know, what did Daniel know of living in a faithless generation? Would he, if he were alive today, would he really be able to relate with the current craziness that we find ourselves in? And the answer is yes. And so let me explain a little bit of what Daniel experienced. And I got some words on the screen, if you'll uh, switch to the slide. So these words are just a bit random. So, trek, Babylonian gods, evil king, castration, demonic teachings, food. How about that for a mixture of words? Let me explain each one of these to you. So, the first one, the trek. So Babylon was 900 miles away from Jerusalem. It took months to get there. Can you imagine, you know, in a day where we don't have Uber and cars and getting to that destination, just the trek would have been horrible, right? And then as Daniel was approaching the city of Babylon, which by the way, was the largest city in the world at that time, he would have been able to see these big walls that surrounded the city of Babylon. And they had huge gates, you know, strategically laid out in the walls that surrounded the city. And each gate represented one of the Babylonian gods, one of their deities. And so you see how we're tracking down Trek, Babylonian gods, In the center of the city was a temple to the chief of the Babylonian gods named Marduk, or Marduk. I don't know how it's pronounced exactly, M-A-R-D-U-K. And 
Also, in the middle of the city of Babylon was this, they called it a ziggurat. Um, we see it, the, you know, you hear about uh, the, the, the Babel, the, the Tower of Babel. That, that's what kind of building this was. But it was a stone structure that almost looked like a pyramid. And this one in Babylon, it rose to 300 feet. It was seven stories that stood 300 feet tall. So Daniel, as he's making this trek into Babylon, he's being captured. He, he would see these walls, these big gates representing these different Babylonian deities. He would see the ziggurat in the middle, towering above the city that was all about the worship of, of Marduk. And so then, as he <laughs> would finally get into the, the city, he would come to realize even more clearly that he was captured by a tremendously evil king and King Nebuchadnezzar. He was an egomaniac. Daniel 3 records that the king created, had a, a 90-foot statue built of himself in gold, and he made everyone bow down and worship it. And if you didn't bow down and worship it, he would kill you. Daniel 4 records Nebuchadnezzar walking around his royal palace in, in Babylon, which was not too far away from the ziggurat in the temple of Marduk. And it, so Daniel 4 records uh, King Neb walking around his palace, and, and he says this. He says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty. Our passage tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took those items from the temple and he put them in the temple of his god, probably of Marduk. And it's, and it's the reason why he did this, and this is a very common thing back in that time, they did that as a way of saying, hey, I am greater than Jerusalem's god. I am greater, I'm a greater king, and my gods are greater than Jehoiakim and his gods. And, and that's why he would have done that. All right, so now we get to eunuch, chief eunuch. We're getting to castration. So, all right, so when we read in the verses that we read, Daniel and his friends, they arrive in Babylon, and the person that's in charge of them is the chief eunuch. And there are scholars, there are quite a few scholars who believe a eunuch was a, a, a male who was castrated. And they believe that Daniel and his friends would have become castrated as well and would have been a eunuch serving underneath the chief eunuch in King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, palace. So can you imagine that if things couldn't get any worse, right? Um, and then if we look at uh, demonic teaching and curriculum, so our passage tells us that Daniel was taught in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans, right? And so this meant that Daniel, Daniel was immersed in Babylonian culture, and he was immersed in a particular curriculum that would uh, teach him certain things. Um, an author by the name of Larry Osborne, he writes this about the curriculum. Babylon was known for its demonic influences. The state-sponsored religion was satanic. And the core curriculum in the schools of higher learning included a large dose of astrology and the occult. In order to prepare for service to the king, Daniel and his three friends were forced to complete a rigorous three-year study program. 
It consisted of learning the language and literature of the Chaldeans, which means that it was designed to certify them as enchanters and magicians, experts in the dark practices of the occult. The Babylonians were really big into this. And that's not it. So Daniel, he was given a new name, and so were his friends. And when we just read that he was given a new name, we just saw, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, people go by different names today. And, I mean, (laughs) the name that cracks me up the most is, remember Ron Artest, the basketball player? He changed his name to Meta World Peace. And I think of Prince, too. He became a symbol. Like, he, he went from Prince to a symbol. Um, these are the thoughts that swirl in my mind as I'm studying throughout the week. So what's the big deal about these names? Well, Bible scholar Trimper Longman explains, in the ancient Near East, the name which often contained the name of one's, the name often, uh, of a person often contained the name of one's deity. It was integrally connected with a person's identity. So names were huge back in this time. And so what the Babylonians did is they gave Daniel and his friends not only this new education, but they gave them these new names. And let me explain these names to you. So Daniel's name meant God is my judge. That's what Daniel means. Well, his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means wife of the god of Bel, which is Marduk, protect the king. That's what his name was changed to. Hannah's, or Hananiah's name meant that Yahweh is gracious. <laughs> Yahweh is the personal name of the God of the Bible, right? Hananiah's name was changed to Shadrach, which likely meant, I am fearful of the command of the Aku. Aku is one of the Babylonian gods. Michelle's name was who meant, who is what God is, right? Who is what God is? Michelle's name was changed to Meshach, which likely meant, who is like a coup? Again, the moon god of the Babylonians. Azariah, which meant Yahweh is a helper, was changed to Abednego, which meant servant of the shining one, Nebo. Nebo was another one of the Babylonian gods. So, new names. I mean, the Babylonians are trying to just radically reprogram these guys in every way. They're trying to get them from their identity in Yahweh. Uh, They want to strip them of that and totally give them a new identity. And then there's the food issue. So, the food that uh, Daniel and his buddies were made to eat or that were, you know, that they had to eat was food that was um, not kosher. It was food that God specifically told the Israelites not to eat in the law of Moses. And so this is the environment that Daniel and his buddies found themselves in. It's as anti-God as an environment, a culture can get. And that's why even long after the historic nation of Babylon you know, ceased to exist, The Bible uses Babylon as a way, as a metaphor for describing the evil in the world and other evil empires. It's just that's that's the Bible's word. 
So hopefully you, can, you have a picture now of what Daniel was up against in this foreign land. So he's the stranger in this foreign land, possibly castrated, forced into a program whose goal was to completely re- reprogram him with the demonic in order to serve an evil king. And we think our nation has gone crazy, right? Um, Here's what's tremendous about Daniel. There's a lot of things tremendous about Daniel, but this in in particular is that Daniel didn't cry out in despair. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. It would have been so easy for Daniel to say, you know, God, why, and shake his fist at God. It would have been easy for Daniel to say, God, why are you so absent? How could you let your city be, you know, eventually it was destroyed by the Babylonians, but how could you let it be besieged? How can you let those articles come out? Those are your articles in the temple. How could you let that happen? It would have been easy for Daniel to doubt God's power, right? By all appearances, it looked like God, Yahweh, was not very powerful and that King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods were more powerful than the God of the Bible. But Daniel, he doesn't wallow in despair. And this is what's so tremendous. He doesn't even complain. So why? Why was Daniel able to live with this kind of way about him? And I think the answer is is that Daniel saw his circumstances through the lens of faith. That's why Daniel was able to just move forward without complaining, without throwing a pity party. Let's check out Daniel 1, 1 through 2, and we'll see how Daniel saw his circumstances through the lens of faith. So let me read it to you again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So verse 1 tells us what the rest of the world saw. So if you look at verse 1, this is what the world saw. The world saw King Nebuchadnezzar exercising his muscle yet one again yet, yet once again coming in taking more cities you know more land for himself proving that his gods are the most powerful gods and now verse 2 tells us what Daniel saw so check out verse 2 because that's Daniel and what he was seeing in all of this what Daniel saw was that Nebuchadnezzar's victory His ability to siege Jerusalem was a result of God allowing that to happen. God intentionally gave Nebuchadnezzar the the victory. It was the result of God's power. You see, God was in control of who was in control. So how did Daniel know that God was actually in control of this whole siege of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, all he could say, I mean, the facts are the facts. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is exercising his, his might 
in just taking this city. So why was da- Daniel able to see this other dimension, the, the, the behind-the-scenes look of what was really going on? How was he able to have that perspective? Well, Daniel knew this was true because he knew God and he knew God's word. That's why he knew the, the truth that God was really allowing the victory. So uh, Daniel knew the biblical story. The biblical story that after uh, humanity rebelled against God and made a mess of God's good world, God chose uh, a man and his family to rescue it. And he promised this man, who was Abraham, that through his family, um, he would bring blessing to all people of the world. And he would make Abraham's family, he would make them into a great nation so that they could extend that blessing to the rest of the world. And then, under the leadership of Moses, this family of Abraham's, which became the nation of Israel, did become a nation. And God gave them the Ten Commandments, and in these Ten Commandments were rules and laws on how they could continue to love God well and how they could be that blessing to the nations of, of the world. If they were disobedient to the commands, they would be cursed by God. But if they were obedient, they would indeed be the vehicle by which God would bring blessing and healing and rescue to the world. Deuteronomy 28 explains what the curse would involve if they decided to um, go against God's laws and his rules. So Deuteronomy 28, 49 and 52 says this. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar... From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. And then skipping to verse 52. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. Unfortunately, even with this warning of, hey, curse if, if you reject God and you're disobedient to the call he's placed on you, Israel, even though they had this warning, unfortunately, Israel rebelled time and time and time again, and God sent his prophets to, like, hey, guys, <laughs> this, you're not going the right way. A curse is going to come upon you if you don't repent and turn back to God. And then eventually... <laughs> Isaiah prophesied that, hey, the time is up. It's going to happen. Isaiah, in in chapter 39, verses 6 and 7, he says this. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now check this out. In verse 7, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be, what, eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see, Daniel knew what was happening to Jerusalem because he knew God and he knew God's word. He knew the biblical storyline. And so when this was all happening in Jerusalem, Daniel knew that This isn't King Nebuchadnezzar. This is God utilizing King Nebuchadnezzar to punish the nation of Israel for their rejection of 
God. The siege of Jerusalem wasn't this random, out of you know, control you know, kind of events. It was God being faithful to his word, being faithful to his promises to Israel. Larry Osborne, he, he writes this about this. God loves us too much to let us stray for long. He'll do whatever it takes to ensure that we bear the fruit of righteousness. If it means pruning, he'll prune. (laughs) This is amazing here. If it means using his enemies to teach us a lesson, he'll use his enemies. If it takes letting the bad guys win to bring us to our knees, he'll let the bad guys win. You see, you, you may think, well, man, that's just nasty of God to allow Israel to be punished like that and allow Jerusalem to be sieged and all that. But no, that, it was the most loving thing that God could do. He was acting in love, hoping that Israel would turn back to him. So Daniel had this perspective that God was in control and that God loved his people. He understood that it was the most loving thing for God to do to the nation of Israel was allow this to happen in Jerusalem. And so I think there are some lessons for us today. So what can we learn from Daniel? Just from the first seven verses of chapter one. Well, let me offer you this. When life gets difficult, we can choose our perspective. When life gets difficult, we can choose our perspective. We can choose to focus on the frustration of the circumstances we are, we're in. We can choose to focus on how evil appears to be triumphing. We can choose to worry. We can choose to whine and complain. We can choose to have a whole bunch of self-pity. We can choose to grow bitter. Or we can choose to view our circumstances through the lens of faith. And this is a big shift. This is a big difference. One will lead you to despair. One will get you through and and enable you to be victorious in time. So we can choose. So if we're going to choose to view our difficult circumstances through the lens of faith, let's just look at what that might look like. So we can choose then to look at our negative circumstances from the perspective that God is in control and that he loves us, he loves you, he loves me perfectly. That's part of the looking through our circumstances through a lens of, of faith. So this means there is <laughs> everything that is necessary for us to grow in holiness and for us to have long-term happiness. Everything that is necessary, God will bring. He will not withhold it. But that also means that everything that is unnecessary for us to grow in holiness and to grow in happiness, long-term happiness, everything that is unnecessary, he will withhold. And so putting this together, it, it means that everything that comes into our life, if we are a child of his, passes through his filter of love, his, his sovereignty, his, his perfect you know, amazing power, and if it's come into our life, if it's, if it's passed through that filter, then it's come through, you know, through for, uh, for great purpose and meaning in our lives. 
It's the best way to pr- produce the best possible results in our life, in the life of others. Or God would have not allowed it to take place in your life. If there was, and this is Chip Ingram, if you remember from our study, if, there's a more ki- if there was a more kinder, more gentle way to do what he needs to do in your life, then he would do it. We go through trials and difficulties in life uh, for different reasons, and sometimes they're a mix of several kind of you know, variables that are coming together to create the storm we're in. One reason that we suffer in life is the result of our sin. I mean, that was Israel. You may be suffering today because you are just blatantly walking in disobedience to God. And he's punishing you because he loves you as a way to bring you to him. You may be suffering not because of your own sin, but because the result of somebody else's sin, right? That happens. You may be suffering just because we live in a fallen, broken world. But here's the promise. No matter why we're suffering, our suffering isn't meaningless. It is not pointless. God is using it to work out his good purposes for us. None of our pain, not one tear is going to be um, wasted. God's going to use it all for your long-term benefit. And this is what Daniel knew. And this is what allowed him to go into Babylon to experience that horrendous environment because he had that perspective. He was seeing his circumstances through the lens of faith. Here are Daniel's words right in the next chapter, Daniel 2, 23. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. Like Daniel, God promises to be with you in your Babylon. I don't know what your Babylon is right now, but chances are you're, you're experiencing something that is difficult, that's dark, that's heavy, that you're trying to make sense of, just like I'm sure the rest of Israel is trying to make sense of in their Babylon. But God has promised that he will give you manna for today, and then tomorrow there will be new manna for you. And there will be new manna for you the next day. New manna for you the next day. And the reason he doesn't give you all the manna you need today for the the long haul, for all of the journey, is because then you wouldn't have to depend on him day by day. His mercies are new each morning. And the, the more that you lean into Jesus, you will not find him just leaning into you. You'll find him carrying you. And so for us... As we go through these difficulties, as we go through our Babylon, it is, do we know God's word? Are we, are we living out, are we, do we have that eternal perspective? Do we have God's perspective on this? Are we filling our minds and our hearts with the truth of the scriptures? Do we trust that God, he is allowing this because it is the best way to produce God's best for us? Let's pray. Lord, uh, I am thankful to continue to journey through this amazing book, and we're just uh, scratching the surface here with, I think, of all the things that uh, we can learn uh, from this book. Lord, thank you for Daniel's example. May we be like Daniel's in our Babylon. May we trust you that uh, you're in control, and you are good, and you are powerful, 
in that you've allowed certain things into our life because there's great purpose and meaning behind it, and, and that is our long-term happiness and holiness. Lord, help us to be faithful, even in the midst of the Babylon. Help us to choose the, the, the perspective of looking through the circumstances that we're in through the lens of faith. Lord, help us to reject self-pity. Help us to reject bitterness. Help us to reject just being mad and angry and upset and wallowing in that. Help us to live for you, trusting you for our daily bread. As we put one foot in front of the other, empower us. May we be reminded that victory is on its way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.